For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and to Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. This is God's word. Good evening. Uh, My name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if we haven't met already. Uh, We've prayed in one sense in the song, but let's pray again as we begin. Our Father God, we, we need clarity and certainty. We need to know that we can trust your word. And so we pray tonight that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that we might trust your son and we might rejoice to live his way. Amen. Okay, so Paul went to Arabia for three years and then he went to Jerusalem for 15 days, during which time he only had substantive conversations with Cephas, that's the other name for Peter, and James. So we're going to close tonight with that wonderfully uplifting Christian hymn that we all know and love, I went to Jerusalem but only after three years. You know that one, surely. I mean, it's you know, a classic passage. There are loads of songs. It is an odd passage. It, uh, It's easy to think, yeah, Paul's travel plans 2,000 years ago and surreptitiously reach for the smartphone. But let me show you as we begin uh, why it is an extremely, extremely relevant passage to you and me in 21st century London to understand Paul's travel plans in 1st century Middle East. Uh, The issue is authority. That's the issue here. The issue is authority. Now, apparently, uh, it is a bit of a problem for doctors these days. Uh, People always search online with Dr. Google before they uh, go to see their GP. And so they think they know what the problem is. And when the doctor says, you really don't need antibiotics, they say, I definitely do because I've Googled it. And so I'm told, um, I'm not sure if we've got the slide, a number of doctors have a mug like this on their desk. I'm not sure if it's made it through onto the... It has, uh, there's a problem with the, the screen, but the, have you seen the mugs? Um, no, your Google search does not have the same validity as my medical degree. And if, if you go to your GP, you'll see a number of them. It's a, it's a very passive-aggressive response, but it's rather lovely. It's just sort of sat on the desk next to the computer. <laughs> and the point is, look, trust the real doctor with the real degree. That's who you trust. Accept the authority of the real doctor and the real degree. It's all very amusing when the issue is how you treat a common cold, not with antibiotics, uh, or you know, a slight twinge in the back. Uh, but my dad is really not well at all. A couple of years back, um, 
they, uh, they found he wasn't well at all, and they found that his heart is down to 12% function. Now, I'm no great mathematician, but that is not good news. He's uh, basically only still alive because of the magnificent care he receives on the NHS. And he has this uh, ridiculously high-tech uh, pacemaker which speaks wirelessly to the hospital so they can sort out dosages and whatever. And he's on a cocktail of drugs that Lance Armstrong would wince at every day. It's, in- it's just incredible. Because um, his life depends on it. And you know what? It really, really matters to him and to me and the rest of the family that we can trust the doctors who say, no, no, you shouldn't be taking those drugs, you should be taking these, and you should change the dosages of those. I want to know that that doctor has got a real degree and that I can trust their authority, because his life depends on it. And you and I, all of us here tonight, and everybody outside this building, the whole human race, we share a condition with a 100% mortality rate. It's called sin. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is destined by rights to spend eternity, having spent most of this life turned away from God, we deserve to spend eternity properly cut off from him. What the Bible calls hell, cut off from God's presence, from his goodness, from his life, from his light forever. And Paul says, I know what the answer to this condition is in the book of Galatians. Now, it really matters when somebody says, I know how to treat, to diagnose, to heal that condition. It really matters that you know you can trust them. And it really matters when they say, look, you can trust me. I tell you, this is the way to be saved, to have eternal life, not eternal death, to have a relationship with God, not his condemnation and punishment. It matters that you can trust him. And it matters when he says, and if you're going to live as people who have been saved, have been forgiven, this is what it means. It matters that you can trust him. Now, Paul had discovered that Jesus Christ is the only answer to our sin. And so Paul gave his life to traveling the known world and telling others about the good news, that is, uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvation. Uh, We saw last week at the beginning of Galatians 1 what that gospel message is. It is that... God has done everything necessary in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. God's done everything necessary in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Or as a friend of mine puts it, God turns up with a whole heap of blessing. We turn up with a whole heap of nothing and God gives us everything. That's the gospel. God's done everything. But as we heard in chapter 1 verse 7, um, Some people have been arrived who are throwing them into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel. People have come to this very young church. It's probably only a year since Paul preached to them and the church was established. And people, it seems, from Jerusalem have come to them and have said, actually, there are things you need to do if you're going to be right with God and if you're going to live a full Christian life with God pleased with you. There's a lot you've got to do if you want to be saved and safe and in God's good books. There are religious rituals that you've got to perform without which you're not really a Christian. And there are rules you've got to keep without which you can't say you're saved. And so the question the Galatian Christians are asking is, can we trust Paul and his gospel? Can we trust him? 
Does he really have the same authority as the other apostles in Jerusalem? Uh, the ones who spent time with Jesus when Jesus was kicking around on earth, you know, actually lived with him. Actually, there's a question interesting that's been asked throughout history about Paul. Uh, so Thomas Jefferson famously described Paul as the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Nietzsche said Paul created the lie of the resurrected Jesus. It's fairly standard belief amongst Muslims today that Christians don't follow Jesus, they follow Paul, who actually got it all wrong. Uh, the, the atheist writer Philip Pullman wrote The Good Man Jesus and The Scoundrel Christ. And his, his premise in writing the book was there was this lovely guy called Jesus. And then this guy Paul turned up and he, uh, he corrupted everything and twisted it and exaggerated it. And what you end up with is Christianity, the wicked religion, rather than the lovely things that Jesus taught. Increasingly, people want to drive a wedge today between Jesus and Paul. And it's an issue inside the church. It's not just an outside the church issue. And the reason is quite simple. There are a number of controversial issues that we get uncomfortable about that Jesus is silent on, but that Paul goes into detail on. And so I often hear people say things like, look, I'm interested by Jesus. I find uh, his life and his teachings um, incredible and fascinating, but uh, I'm not so keen on Paul. I just find he's just really hard. and, And it would just be a whole lot easier if I could stick with Jesus. That just seems safer to me. You see, Paul gave his life not just to teaching the gospel of how we're saved, but also what it means to live out that salvation. And so he does speak about some of the controversial hot-button issues in 21st century London that are very countercultural. He does talk about the roles of men and women and uh, how we behave sexually. He talks about greed. He talks about self-fulfillment, issues that we don't really like to hear teaching on. So it really actually makes a big difference what you think about Paul. It makes a big difference, even if you say, yep, I'm a signed up Christian. It makes a difference whether you think, I can trust Paul as much as I trust the Gospels. It'll change how you live day to day. Because if you don't accept Paul as an authentic apostle, you won't accept his Gospel as an authentic Gospel. And you won't be confident to stand up for what he teaches in the Bible about the controversial issues of today. We'll cave in when uh, people mock, ridicule, or question, or push back. And we'll probably start to cave in on the way we behave too in those areas. So it really matters. And Paul is very clear. He is absolutely clear that there is no questioning his credentials. The very first verse of Galatians, Paul, an apostle, sent not from man, nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then in verse 11, he picks up this theme, tonight's passage. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. There are three things that he teaches um, to establish his authenticity. So um, as we saw last week, there are three sections to Galatians. You've got, if you like, uh, biography, theology, and ethics. So chapters 1 to 2, which is where we are at the moment, Paul establishes his authority by telling us his story, his biography. Chapters 3 and 4, he's going to go into the theology of the gospel he preaches, the true gospel. And then 5 to 6, what does it mean to live that gospel out, the ethics? So uh, three things tonight as we look at it. There's no human involvement in his commission. There's no human involvement in his instruction. And there's no human explanation for his transformation. 
So verses 13 to 17. Now the apostles in Jerusalem, we were hearing actually this morning, each of the apostles in Jerusalem, what set them apart is they were eyewitnesses to Jesus who were personally chosen by Jesus to be his witnesses who would take his message out to the world. But Jesus had gone back to heaven before Paul became a Christian. So how on earth does he get to be an apostle as well? Where he receives the gospel directly from Jesus, verse 12. I received it, that is the gospel, by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then Jesus commissioned him. So verses 13 to 17. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to go and consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Now, you can read the background to this in Acts chapter 7 to 9. Uh, The point is, human contact with Christians did not lead Paul to become a Christian. When Paul met Christians, he didn't say, I would love to hear more about that. He said, I'd like to stick you in jail and I'd like to stone you to death. That's what happened when Paul met Christians. So how did he change? He stresses two things in these verses. The direct intervention of Jesus Christ and the sovereign plan of God the Father. So verse 12 I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's the Damascus Road, the famous incident where in Acts 9, Paul's traveling to Damascus with the aim of destroying the Christian church there, the young believers there, and Jesus Christ appears to him on the road. And suddenly there is no denying that Jesus is the truth. There's no denying that he's risen from the dead. There's no denying that he is the Lord. And so Paul is converted. And then secondly, verse 15 stresses the sovereign work of God. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you see? God commissioned him. God had always planned. Before sin even came into the world, God planned that Paul would take the message that there is a solution to sin, a gospel, out to the non-Jewish, the Gentile people. He'd always planned that he would take this zealous, hateful man who was so zealous for Judaism that he was killing Christians and he would turn him into the one who would take the gospel out to non-Jewish people. And then having met Jesus, Paul didn't uh, go to Jerusalem to receive validation, you know, the, the stamp of approval from the other apostles. Instead, verse 17, he went to Arabia because he didn't need it. He'd had it from Jesus So what's the point? The point is there was no human involvement in the conversion and commission of Paul as an apostle. It was the direct intervention of God. Had Paul heard the gospel from the other Jerusalem apostles, he would always be a sort of second tier apostle beneath them, reliant on them. A secondary figure who you can't really sort of trust him. But he's not a second rank apostle. Like them, Jesus has appeared to him in his resurrection body. He's a witness to the resurrection. And like them, he is personally chosen, appointed, and sent by Jesus. In other words, there's no human involvement in his commission. He is a full-fledged apostle. Okay, secondly, there's no human involvement in his instruction. Okay, so God has saved him, 
but he never met Jesus while Jesus was walking and teaching on earth. So surely as soon as he's been saved, he needs to go and be taught by the other apostles, right? Wrong. Instead, he goes to Arabia. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, verse 17. Only later I returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I'm writing to you is no lie. Three years in Arabia, presumably pouring over the Old Testament and reading it in a new light and being taught directly by the risen Lord Jesus. Must have been an extraordinary time for him. There's a... um, if you've ever been to the, the British Museum, there's a thing called the Rosetta Stone. It's the most viewed thing in the British Museum. And uh, for centuries and centuries, no one really understood hieroglyphics. And then a couple of theories came out, and people thought that they could understand Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, the strange picture writings. And people thought, we know what's going on with hieroglyphics. And then in 1799, um, I was about to say we, but it wasn't we, it was the French who found it. And we just nicked it off them. Well done us. Um, the uh, Sorry, French people. Um, But uh, the French Napoleon soldiers found this stone and this stone proved to be the key because you've got, it's got hieroglyphics, then demotic script, and then it's got Greek, which they could translate. And so suddenly you had the same text in three different languages and they were able to translate to understand hieroglyphics. You had a key that explained what it had always meant. And for Paul, as he goes to Arabia, as Jesus teaches him and as he looks back at the Old Testament, suddenly he has the key. Passages he thought he understood. Teaching he thought he knew what it meant. But now as the risen Lord Jesus stands before him, he sees that all of the Old Testament pointed to him. Finally, he has the key, the Rosetta Stone for the Old Testament in Jesus. And everything is clear to him. But what he didn't get is the other apostles teaching him. Because he didn't need that. So after three years standard degree length course. I'm not sure that's where we get it from, but who knows? Anyway, after three years, he went back to Jerusalem. But he tells us he only had substantial conversations with a couple of the leaders, with Cephas, that's Paul, uh, Peter, um, and with uh, James, the Lord's brother, who was uh, sort of seen as an apostle, it seems, as well. Um, he doesn't say what they discussed. Uh, presumably, they did more than talk about the weather, Brexit negotiations, and the transfer window. They did, I imagine it would be pretty odd if Jesus didn't crop up in conversation between Peter and Paul. But 15 days is not long enough for Peter to have given Paul his substantive theological education. Again, the point is clear. Paul's theological education didn't come from the other Jerusalem apostles. It wasn't like when a church wrote to Paul and said, we've got this tricky theological issue, like the Corinthians sent to him. He didn't have to email Peter to say, what do I say? No, he'd been instructed by Jesus. He'd been shown how to read the Old Testament. And through the Spirit, he was able to teach the church authoritatively. So half the New Testament is his letters teaching the church. Jesus taught him all that was needed. Okay, there was no human involvement in his commission or his instruction. Lastly, there was no human explanation for his transformation. Now, the last verses continue the point. He's arguing, look, I had very little contact with the churches around Jerusalem and Judea. No one can say I was dependent on the Jerusalem apostles and the teachers and leaders in their churches for my faith. But as he argues that, he makes another interesting point. Verse 21. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. 
I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. There is no human explanation for his radical transformation. That's his point. Only God could have done it. He must have received the true gospel message from Jesus because only the true gospel message has the power to transform somebody the way Paul was transformed. That's how you see the real gospel. Remember I did, um, when I was at theological college, we had to go on um, college missions where you went to help a church that was running a week of events to um, tell other people in the community about Jesus. And I went up to Chorley in Lancashire and it, uh, it was a great week. It stood out for two things. Uh, firstly, because it was the first and only time I've ever found I needed a translator in my own country. Um, no offense to the people of Chorley, but genuinely knocking on doors, I was so glad there was another church member with me because twice I just had to look at them and I have no idea what they've just said. All right, caucus about it. Ding, dong, ding, dong, do. You, what? I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Um, it's a fantastic accent, but I just couldn't understand. The second reason that it was... Um, uh, it was quite an amazing week, was hearing the testimony of the vicar, Ken. Now, Ken had been a really nasty, nasty man as a young man. Um, he was a Manchester United fan. Now, I'm tempted to say that's, that's all you need to know about him, um, but I wouldn't ever say a thing like that. Um, the, he was head of the Manchester United football hooligan branch of their fans in the 80s when hooliganism was a big thing. So he would travel to the away matches and they'd watch the game and then they'd all pile out and go to a field nearby where he'd arranged with his opposite number to have a big fight and they would beat seven bells out of each other. That was his weekend. He was a really nasty, violent man. He still got scars all over his face from that time. Um, but his wife, when he got married, wanted their baby to be baptised and he had absolutely no interest in that. He hated Christian things. And he only agreed to it on the basis that he would hand the baby over at the gates of the church to the vicar. The baby would get baptized and he'd take the baby back. He said, that's the only basis I'll do it on. But when he met the vicar, uh, and the vicar insisted they talk a bit so he knew what he was getting into, uh, his wife became converted and then he started to hear the gospel from this vicar. And his life was completely transformed by Jesus Christ. He uh, gave up his violence still supports Man U, uh, but he gave up his violence. Uh, he gave up his violence, and he is now the most loving, gentle man. He's a vicar up north, and is a wonderful man. Only Jesus can do that. Only the real gospel has that power. Actually, a few years later, he was at a clergy conference, and there was a young, uh, there was a, a young minister who was talking about how he'd become a vicar. He said one of, the, one of the things that had sort of really turned his life, one of the the moments in his life that made him really reassess is he got caught up in a football riot and got beaten senseless. And Ken realised, I think I recognise that guy. And he, had to, he had to go up and admit, he said, uh, yeah, I think that was me, um, which is kind of an awkward moment, really. Um, utterly transformed by the power of Jesus. That's Paul. He went from murdering Christians to being willing to give his life to tell other people about Jesus. Only God could do that. That's the power of the gospel. You see it actually in our church too. Looking out here and looking in the mirror, I see some of us were violent and abusive. Some were greedy, proud, angry. Some were enslaved by all sorts of sexual sin. Some of us were liars, cheats at work if we're honest. 
Even those of us who looked like pretty decent people on the outside were consumed with me, lived life for ourselves as if I'm at the center of the universe. But then God introduced us to his son, as he'd planned to do since before he were born. And God showed us, opened our eyes to the historical truth that Jesus died to pay for our sins. And at the empty tomb proves he rose again to give new life. And we were transformed. Of course, none of us are perfect. We're all works in progress. But the gospel changed us. And this is the final piece of evidence of Paul. He says, look, you're not convinced I'm the real, genuine apostle. Well, I didn't hear the gospel from any other of the apostles. So how on earth was I changed? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ could have done that. And if I didn't hear it from the apostles, I must have heard it from Jesus. The true gospel proves that Paul can be trusted. Okay, so what? I said it would be relevant. So what? So trust Paul. He's not a second tier apostle. Jesus commissioned the Jerusalem apostles to take the gospel out into the world. And he enabled them to remember and record accurately the events of his life, death and resurrection so that they could write the four gospel accounts. The same Jesus commissioned Paul to take the gospel out into the world and enabled him to teach the truth about the gospel and its implications for our lives and instruct the churches. And so the letters of Paul in the Bible have exactly the same authority as the gospels. Beware of red letter Bibles. The words of Paul have the same authority as the words of Jesus because Jesus gave those words to Paul. So trust Paul. That also means for the Galatians and for us that when we hear things, messages, versions of the gospel, ideas about how you become a Christian that don't fit with what Paul teaches, then they cannot be the true gospel, which alone can save us from our sins. Now, as I said at the start, this truth is under attack that you can trust Paul, that Paul is equal to the other apostles because, as I said, there are controversial things that Paul teaches on that the other apostles don't. Now, there's a good reason for that, a very simple reason. Jesus was ministering to Jews. And so there were a heap of things that weren't issues amongst the people he's ministering to that were in the wider pagan Roman culture. Jesus just didn't need to go into much detail on uh, honesty and business and racial divisions because they weren't an issue, by and large, with the people he was dealing with. Likewise, to pick the elephant in the room, Jesus didn't need to go into huge detail on sexual immorality because lust, adultery, and divorce were the only... They were the, the ways that marriage, God's will for marriage, was being denied in Israel. But when he, but when he instructed Paul to take the gospel into the wider Roman world... Well, things were much more like 21st century London than they were like Israel. And so Paul has to teach on a whole heap of other sexual issues. In Corinth, people are sleeping with their mother-in-law. He has to deal with homosexuality. He has to deal with all sorts of things that Jesus just didn't have to. And when Paul addresses those issues, he writes with God's authority. So it is not safe or okay to say, look, Jesus doesn't talk about this issue, and so I, I think it's safer just to stick with what Jesus says, and I'll ignore Paul here. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as the other apostles are. 
Paul is commissioned by Jesus just as the other apostles are. To reject Paul's writings is to reject the Holy Spirit who inspired them. To reject the Jesus who commissioned him is to reject the God who called him from before his birth. You and I can be confident, even though the authority of Scripture is under attack, as it always has been and always will be, we can be confident in the whole Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. Paul's authority as an apostle, this is where it bites for you and me, means we cannot avoid the costly, difficult things, the controversial things that he teaches on. We can't park them in a not-quite-so-certain category, unlike the Gospels. But the thing we often miss when we get sidetracked by that is that there are good things we lose if we downgrade Paul. There are things that... If Paul is a fully-fledged apostle, but only if he is, we can rejoice in and delight in and take comfort in. You see, if Paul is a full apostle, but only then, we can rejoice in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Paul wrote that. If Paul is fully an apostle, but only if he is fully an apostle, do these words have authority? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do you want to downgrade Paul? If Paul is an apostle, but only if Paul is an apostle, you and I can stand on and trust in till our dying day, the words of Romans 8. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you undermine Paul, you undermine those words too. Now praise God, praise God that Paul is a full apostle. Praise God that he proclaimed the true gospel. Praise God that his teaching on what it looks like to be a Christian is God's teaching. And praise God that we can trust and delight in and rely on every word he wrote just as much as the Gospels. Praise God indeed. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, thank you for this quirky little passage. We thank, you, uh, we thank you that it helps us see the authority of Paul. Thank you that you did commission him. You did call him so that we do have one who has written and taught in such depth on so many of the questions that we face in our culture. Help us, Father, to have confidence in his gospel 
that we might understand our salvation. And in his teaching that we might understand what it looks like to live a life pleasing to you. And our Father, we thank you that his glorious words, his wonderful words, his comforting words are your words and we can rely on them. Amen.